You're listening to a special book podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. This is the third and final installation of a series of podcasts drawn from our book celebration held on November 29th, 2021 at the church, celebrating the work of six writers in our community. Today's episode features John Bodicher, his book Ten Steps on Freedom Road, an exploration of the Ten Commandments in a really new and invigorating sort of a way. This book was published on resource publications right before the pandemic began. It was, oh, the fall of 2019. We had recorded a series of readings. John read all the way through his book, and we released those as a podcast series. We were just gearing up to do a book release event with him, scheming the most interesting way to present his work, and everything shut down. Also in today's episode is Adeline Berg, her book, The Orange Couch on Wheels. It's a memoir of a life well-lived. It's full of fun, observation, there's moments where it's poignant. It's a really lovely read, but we'll get there. You'll get a taste of Adeline's work. First up, John Bodicher. Now, John doesn't actually do a reading from his work, but rather gives an introduction to what it's all about, chapter by chapter by chapter. And then he turns on a dime and offers a couple of original poems from a collection he's now currently working on. That's all good. Take a listen. I was first nurtured in a Methodist church in Ohio when they had communion services. They would often use this Wesleyan. I don't know if it's, if it, it was, it must be because Wesley was Anglican. Yeah. So, okay. God spoke all these words and said, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then follows the next two commandments. And then the people say, Lord have mercy upon us and write all these thy laws in our hearts, we beseech thee. So I grew up with that. We worked through the commandments on a, on a Sunday morning, and I, I gradually came to have a sense of their importance in the Christian life. Uh, I thought I had a vocation for uh, ordained ministry, and uh, so I studied uh, theology in the 50s and early 60s. And uh, that was a time of neo-Orthodox theology. They were recovering the importance of the thought of the reformers. And uh, Luther, of course, being foremost, and Luther uh, was kind of big on this idea of the law versus the gospel, the bad news and the good news. And because Luther was lured into imagining that the papacy, his enemies, were the people that were laying down the law, and he was offering the good news, the evangelical religion. Now, that had consequences, and some of the consequences were that 
in my nurturing, and maybe in yours too, the commandments were seen as kind of bad news. Something that, they were things that we have to do, and they were not free. So freedom and commandments, opposites. But doggone Luther, he wrote a little thing for the use in the forming character in young Christians. He wrote a little thing called The Small Catechism. If you haven't ever read it, you gotta do that. It doesn't take long, but it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And one of the reasons it's brilliant is because that when Luther wasn't worried about dissing the papists, he was aware of the fact that those commandments were part of the gospel. Eventually, I kind of figured that out. I figured it out partly because I was invited to be a catechist. Well, first it was when I was a minister in a rural congregation in Illinois, and that was a good start. But then later, in a lay role in a local Lutheran church, and some wonderful young people, in the, including my children, in that uh, catechism process there. And I got charged, and the minister decided I was the guy that was gonna do the commandments year. So I did, and we did it with Luther, and we started to discover with those children what wonderful good news this could be. So and that continued in other catechism work that I've done. I never did a course on that. Uh, I was doing, I don't know, somehow I thought ethics had to do with all the secular stuff, you know. I had to talk about technology and the environment and all those things, which were important. But in the churches where I was living, there were youth who needed to be taught about the commandments, and I kept learning more as I did that. Then came a long, dry stretch in my life. And I had a hard time for a long time sleeping at night. I would go to bed and just lie there and think about all the you-know-what that I was walking through. And uh, what I had done wrong and what I could have done better and what I ought to do and so on. And I started to think, okay, how am I going to get some spiritual sense out of all this. So I did a couple of things that I knew to do from my formation. I would start to go through the Ten Commandments at night and ask myself, what does that really mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean in particular? What does it mean in this cultural context? And then after I think about each commandment for a while, I would say, Lord, have mercy on me and write this thy commandment in my heart, I beseech thee, or something like that. And sometimes I'd even make it all the way to the end before I went to sleep. I did that with the Beatitudes too, but I don't think I'm going to write a book on the Beatitudes because there's two or three wonderful new books out on the Beatitudes that I think probably beat me to it. But I wrote, I wrote finally this book for, uh, I guess I was thinking of my grandchildren, because they, uh, we don't any longer, when we're teaching people what it's about to be a Christian, 
we no longer often have to disabuse them of what they've learned from a, a pseudo-Christian culture. They just don't know. So we can start from scratch, and it's kind of wonderful. So I thought, okay, with the grandchildren, I can start from scratch, and I can write this book about why the commandments are good news. I'm not going to read from it. What I am going to read is just the, uh, the subtitles of each of the ten chapters. I had to start first by saying how the commandments are part of a story and they try to try to give the big picture of what that story is. That was kind of fun to do. And I found as I was doing it, as I was writing, I had to challenge what everybody assumes is the meaning of freedom and is the meaning of faith. Both of those I had to try to refocus. So I did that at the beginning a little bit, and then at the end I come back and I try to work on that some more. But in the, in the main part of the book, it's just the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to go through the titles. Maybe you can remember what each commandment is, but I'm just going to read to you the subtitle. The first commandment, subtitle, A Faithful Atheism. God gives us in covenant the permission not to believe in God's. It's wonderfully freeing when you realize how many gods there are impressing themselves upon us in the world today. I talk about a few of those. Second commandment, call freedom for imagination. Images, no images of God. What would that mean if that frees up our imagination? Well, you'll have to see by reading the commandment. Third commandment, the one about uh, not taking the name in vain, I, the, the subtitle is Freedom for Listening. We, we misuse religious talk to oppress others, to kind of force our views upon them. What a great thing it would be to be freed from that and to be able to listen to others and to learn from their own religious traditions and experience. Fourth commandment, Sabbath, freedom to rest and enjoy. Fifth commandment, father and mother, freedom to be yourself. That's who we are, goes back to our relationships for good or for ill or for both with our parents. So sorting that out is pretty important and pretty liberating in my experience. Sixth commandment, not to kill. Freedom for life together. Seventh commandment, adultery. Freedom for intimacy. Eighth commandment, not to steal. Freedom for ownership. Ninth commandment, not to speak ill of others. Freedom for friendship. And the Tenth Commandment, not to covet, the freedom of gratitude. So those are the ways in which I try to spin out uh, the freedom that I find and have found and continue to find in those commandments. And then I conclude with a chapter to, to 
in which I try to show how central the commandments are to the New Testament, and to uh, and, and especially I use the uh, letter to the Romans in that respect. This book was finished and, and printed and gone by the beginning of the pandemic. So, like some of you, I had the pandemic there. And what do you do during a pandemic? Well, you write a book, right? I had a whole bunch of poems sitting around, and I put them together and revised them endlessly. And they've gone to the publisher, so I'm cheating. It's a second book. It's not, it's not out yet. This is a psalm of lament. If you know why, don't tell me. I just don't want to know. I can't believe that anyone would plan this dreadful show where those we love are dying and our faith is put on trial while the silence of our weeping chokes any friendly smile. The beauty that was given is slipping fast away. No prayer or song or mantra will make that beauty stay. They walked in strength beside us. Their growing showed us grace. No platitude will ever light up their empty space. So why are we still praying? There's nothing left to gain. Do you still walk beside us along this road of pain? The place to which you call us seems ever more remote. The Easter hallelujah is sticking in my throat. And one more, and this is for Lynn. One of the commandments that I had the hardest time with, maybe it was, well, never mind that. Um, when I married Lynn, it was my third wedding, and uh, I knew it. So I wrote this. But it's, maybe it's for other people here, too. It's called the wedding song. Nothing is more fragile than a promise. 10,000 break each day before the dawn. The patterns of their webs and snare are hoping, but when the winds of life blow, they are gone. Yet on this day, we claim a human power by promising to share what God may give for each to call our own the other's future, to be together in the life we live. In such a world as ours, these vows seem foolish, as foolish as one rising from the grave. God, grant us faith to know your foolish wisdom, to trust the possibility you gave. We offer unto you our fragile promise, and listening for the wing beats of a dove, we wait for you to weave our threads of hoping into a holy tapestry of love. Thanks. Next up is Adeline Berg, with excerpts from her memoir, The Orange Couch on Wheels. A little different tone than what you've heard until now. One evening, Mum and I were having our usual lively conversation. We were standing in the passageway between my bedroom and the top of the stairs. I mused. 
I don't think I will ever get married. I will enjoy my nephews and nieces who, are, who will fill my life. I don't want to hope that the man of my dreams will be around every corner. I will be a content old maid. I was all of 23 years old. In my mind, I was thinking that if I had not found that tall missionary in Europe, I would quit looking for that special someone. Of course you're going to get married, was Mom's equally effusive response. I shot back. Tell me who I'm going to marry. Tell me one person that I can marry. Without blinking an eye, she retorted, Gilbert Byrne, that is who you will marry. I will never marry him, was my equally quick response. My retort indicates that I had thought about this possibility. <laughs> two, months two months later, we were dating. The reason I wrote this book is because one was I had all these piles of journals and, and, and diaries and things that we had done in our lives and I thought a lot of them were kind of interesting and, and important for our children to learn. And, and so then uh, I started pulling things out which I thought were maybe would be better to just have in a book and, and along came a class that Wilma Dirksen was teaching which started a whole journey with her and continues today. We're, I'm still in a writing group with, with, that she leads. And um, it, it culminated in this, which I would have never thought. My goal was to do this for my kids and my grandkids, and, and she pushed it much beyond what I would have ever thought. And it's, it was a very fun journey. I really, really have enjoyed writing. I've never thought of myself as a writer, and I don't know that I still do, but it's, it's, I hope you enjoy reading the book. So what I'm reading today was that was my that was about my mother who was very very special to me. She was my best friend, and we talked about everything, and uh, which was very uncommon in in my day. And so and she died when I was 38. So it, our children didn't know her, and so I'm, this book isn't about her, but about her influence on my life. So um, I chose that part to read. The second part I'm going to read is about, uh, I was a teacher first, and then I became a mother, and then I became a pastor's wife, which became a vocation, and if you read the book, you'll see how that works. And, uh, and then, so one of the places that we were, uh, that Gilbert was pastoring, was in Leaf Rapids, which is um, about 12 hours north of here. Our house seemed to be the Leaf Rapids restaurant and hotel. We got lots of company from out of town. Friends would come for a week. Our parents and other family members would show up. People who had not visited us before, ever, liked the thought of coming way up north to see us, and we were excited to share with our prairie friends what seemed a different way of life. I remember getting a phone call one morning at around 11.45 a.m. from a young family with several children, asking if they could come for lunch as they were passing through Lynn Lake to Thompson. I did not know who they were, but got out some hamburger meat and some buns that were ever in the free freezer, and made up some chili, something quick, fed them, and they were on their way. One day, I counted how many people I had fed in a particular week. Seventy-five. Not all for meals, but cookies or something. Visits by siblings helped maintain a crucial connection to the outside world. 
Um, there, you know, you were all, you were from away if you came up north. One weekend, my sister and brother-in-law came up to see us. They, along with others, stopped at Peace of Falls, Manitoba's highest waterfalls, a gorgeous spot to picnic. The sun was shining, the nature scenes breathtaking. Everyone was in a good mood. Henry, Henry, my brother-in-law, saw some people at the next picnic table. While Anne, my sister, was getting their picnic lunch together, Henry asked their couple, the couple, so where are you headed? To Leaf Rapids was the response. Oh, so are we, countered Henry. Who are you going to see, was question number two. To see Gilbert and Adeline Berg. <laughs> oh, so are we, was Henry's response. After a brief conversation, Henry went on to tables number two and three. He repeated all the questions and got all the same answers. He was a bit confused as to how Gilbert and Adeline Bird were going to house all these folks. I believe there were people involved, as children involved as well. I would love to have a conversation now with some of those people. Are any of you here, perchance? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I have no memory of who they were. I know one family was just camping in our yard, not sure about the other. Maybe they were camping out in our basement. One, one of our good friends, Jim, drove up as they were all arriving. He asked, is there anything I can do for you, Adeline? My response, can you go and get us some toilet paper? I'm not quite sure how we survived all this, but we still look back at this time with great fondness. And then, um, after we moved to Winnipeg, uh, um, Gilbert uh, again was pastoring in, in Maples, which was an, a lovely, lovely interlude of wonderful pastoring experience. I got a job at working at Hope Center, which is now Epic, and I was, I was 46 and I started a whole new career that lasted 19 years. That was amazing. I had been a teacher somewhere in there as well. As you can see, this little orange couch traveled all over the place. Susan's and this Susan was one of the, the, the uh, my first home that I worked at had four people in it. Susan was one of them, not their real names. Susan's birthday was coming up. Let's have a party, I said to an exciting Susan. We can print up some nice invitations. You can take them to work and invite your friends. I made up the invitations and printed the names of the people she wanted to come. She came home from work and said, I need more invitations. I want to invite Brenda and Sophie and Harry as well. I think I must have looked a little stunned as I knew that some of those names had been printed on the cards. It was then that I realized my stupidity. Susan couldn't read. If Joe got Susan's invitation, even though he might know that the name on the invitation was not his name, he would not have objected. Who doesn't want to go to a party? So I kept printing invitations. On the day of the party, about 75 people showed up. Standing room only. This is in a home. Thankfully, you can always order more pizza. What fun and what a self-esteem booster that was for Susan. Her family, who were also invited, were stunned. Little by little, attitudes to Susan were changing a bit more of a shift. I tell that story about Susan and how attitudes from her family changed to, in, in these kinds of ways. When it came time for my birthday, it's going to be a surprise, Susan would say with a twinkle in her eye. And Abigail would join the chorus of something's going to happen. Each day, this excitement would be expressed. 
It didn't take too long for me to realize that if there was going to be a surprise birthday party for me, I would have to plan it. But that also turned out to be fun, since we soon realized that Anne's birthday, who was another staff member who actually hired me, was also in April, so I could plan a party for two. The household taught me to celebrate with abandon. It became the party house. Others' birthdays also needed to be celebrated. People who were lonely found reason to come and visit. Later, when I moved from manager to a coordinator and on to a director of residential services, if I needed to recharge and just relax, I would go and see Abigail, Peter, Nicholas, and Susan. Abigail, who would immediately recognize the stress in me, would go make a cup of tea and tell me to put up my feet. No questions would be asked except to say, you are working too hard. These visits would ground me and keep me going for another month or so. I was always welcomed with wide open arms. Other staff would experience the same. Abigail had lost a son, who so could identify with grief. One staff member had lost a brother, and the family had refused to talk about their grief. One, one of the staff's roles was to take Abigail to the graveside of her son on the anniversary of his death. Abigail would have a good cry, say a prayer, and just stand there for a while, and then she would be ready to go again. The staff member was astounded. She went to get help and did her own grief work, all because of Abigail. So that brings to a conclusion our three-part podcast series on these books written by folks from our community, a couple just before the pandemic began. That's John Bodicher and Angeline Schellenberg. And then four of us who wrote over the course of these odd days and brought books into publication in the midst of the most unusual times. This is a good way to share these works. I'd encourage you to head to the show notes. You'll find links to the post on our website, some other information, including a link to John's reading, full reading of his book on the Ten Commandments. And if you would like to support our online work, you can also do that by going to that website and there's a donate button at the top right corner of the page. There is no expectation, but it does help us keep doing what we do. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.